Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. So if you have your Bible, follow me over to the Gospel of John once again. We'll be in chapter 5. We're going to finish up chapter 5 this morning, verses 30 through 47. I know before you think about it, that's a lot of verses, but we're going to make it through uh, all of those verses. Uh, the other night on Sunday, uh, I spent an hour and 20 minutes on two verses in First Peter on the on the, the late Facebook Live and, and the podcast, but I'm not going to spend that much time uh, today, uh, so don't worry. Hey, so let's read God's Word because I've already spent too much time rambling. Beginning in verse 30, the Bible says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, this is Jesus speaking, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him, him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to him, you sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." You, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If, if another can, comes in his name, or in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another, one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for who wrote of for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? Let's pray. Father, we come to you again and thank you for this day that you've given us and the privilege we have to be in your house and just thank you, Lord, for the just the opportunity to ascribe to you worth and to praise your name for who you are and and what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for the, the word that you have left us, your truth that has revealed to us your work in redemptive history, it reveals to us who you are, reveals to us the son that you have sent on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, as we uh, engage your word this morning, that the truth of it 
will be tools in the hands of the Holy Spirit to bring about sanctification in our life. It will help us understand more about you and what it is that you're doing to redeem people. And pray, Father, that it would challenge us uh, to be more faithful to you in the cause that you've called us to. It will convict us in those areas where we uh, lack faithfulness, in those areas where we are tempted to sinfulness, Lord, and that it would change the way we think and the way we act and the way we live. And as always, Lord, we ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor, honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the last time we were together, we were looking at Jesus earlier in chapter 5, defending his divinity, in essence his authority, to claim what he claims about himself and to do what it is that he uh, is doing. And so that defense began because Jesus had healed a paralytic. He went to the pool of Bethesda, and there were many people there, and he goes to this one particular gentleman that was there, and he tells him to get up, to take up your mat, and to walk. And this man was healed. He got up, he took up his mat, and he walked. And that infuriated the religious leaders. You remember we talked about it a little bit. They were not, they were not amazed and to the point of praising God for the miraculous healing that had just taken place. They were ticked off that this man got up and took his mat and walked on the Sabbath day. And the Bible tells us uh, that for this reason, they were persecuting uh, Jesus because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Well, Jesus responds to them, and Jesus doubles down, all right? And then they're going to double down. Listen in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal to God. And so they, they ramped up their disdain for Jesus from merely persecuting him to plotting out how they're going to kill him because they understood exactly what he was saying. You know, we, we told you last time, there, there are people in this world who want to make this claim that Jesus never claimed to be God in, in the scripture. Well, why is it that these Jewish religious, Jewish religious leaders wanted to kill him? They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what he was claiming. And to them, it was the highest level of blasphemy that there was. And they were determined to rid the world of Jesus Christ because of that. Now, Jesus begins to defend himself. And he talks about you know, how his, his authority was equal to God's authority. His works were equal to God's work. So he had the authority because the Father had sent him to do these things, to say these things. And God's works were, his works were equal with the Father's works because he was just doing what the Father had sent him to do. And today is the conclusion of that defense that Jesus gives. And we can kind of imagine it like this. Like we're in a courtroom, and everybody watches Law and Order, right? 
in law and order, a lot of times you'll see them, they get up and they'll do, not that that's the epitome of what courtrooms are about, right? <laughs> but we can relate to it. They, they give an opening statement of some sort, then they present witnesses throughout the case, and then they give a closing argument. So that's kind of how we're going to look at uh, this passage uh, today. So we're going to see Jesus kind of give an opening statement. He's going to present four witnesses to us that he is able to do and say the things that he's able to do and say because of the validity of these witnesses. And then he's going to have a closing argument that really just kind of turns the table over on to the Jews and points the finger at these Jewish religious leaders. Anytime, when I, when I say the word Jews in this, when John uses the term Jews, he's almost always talking about uh, the religious leaders. So that's, that's kind of their nomenclature uh, as he, descri- he defines them. Because we know that there are a lot of Jews there. Not all of them are like these religious leaders, but these particular Jews wanted to kill Jesus. So we're going we're we're to start with verses 30 through 32 first, and we'll see Jesus's opening argument. So if you would um, go with me there in the scripture. And Jesus says in this opening argument, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then here's the most profound statement in this text. Not, I mean, it's, it's important to know that Jesus sent, was sent by, the Son was sent by the Father, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, is, is not true. That, that is a profound sentence, isn't it? Because, at least in our minds, We ought to think if there is any person on planet Earth who could bear witness on his own behalf and it be true, it would be the second person of the Trinity, right? So we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it that Jesus makes this kind of declaration? In essence, Jesus is saying, hey, rhetorical evidence is insufficient, And there are a couple things that come to mind when we think about why would Jesus make this statement? Because of all people, he ought to be able to, you know, declare evidence for himself because he is God in the flesh. Well, there are those who believe that maybe he is looking at this from the Old Testament perspective. And Jesus was a a, a devout Jew who was living under the Mosaic law. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us he, he fulfills the law, whereas no one else could ever have done that. And in the Mosaic law, when you get over to Deuteronomy in particular, there's this aspect that the law says that you can't convict a person or bring judgment upon the person based on a single witness. You've got to have two or three witnesses. And it's upon the evidence of those two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, if you look for the reference, it's upon the evidence of those two or three witnesses that you can then bring judgment upon that person. And that seems like a legit, uh, I mean, a reasonable uh, law, doesn't it? I wouldn't want just some one person to be able to stand up and say, hey, he did it. And then I go to the death get the death penalty, right? We, we, we want more evidence than that against our own selves uh, in life. And so that's a, regi- a, a, a legitimate ask. And so I think that's why God, one of the reasons God put it in there, because he is a great and awesome God. And there may be some of that going on there, but I like the way Paul Twist, he's a professor at the, the Master Seminary, I like the way he looks at this passage because there's something, I think, deeper going on in what Jesus is saying. And he makes this contention that 
This has in mind a, a Trinitarian aspect. And he, his statement is that you can't understand who Jesus is apart from his relationship to the Father and the Spirit. And I think we see that thread throughout John. And Jesus actually uh, uses this, this statement several times, even in our text today, that he was sent by the Father. And as a matter of fact, if you flipped back over, this idea of sending is important in the narrative of John. If you went over to John chapter 1 and verse 6, we see that there was a man sent by God, and his name was John. John the Apostle tells us, talking about John the Baptist. And here in verse 30, Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Then verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 26, uh, he, he will see that the helper ultimately is one, the Holy Spirit, one that proceeds from or is sent from the Father and the Son to us. So this idea of sending is an important aspect in understanding who Jesus is in the narrative of the New Testament. And I think that is a very powerful point for us to make because what do we see throughout the New Testament as it relates to redemptive history? We always see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit at work in redeeming human beings. It'll become very clear to us right now, you know, we get glimpses of the Holy Spirit working in the, in the Gospel of John. But when we get over, I think it's John chapter 16, we're going to see the Holy Spirit's role amplified for us in bringing a people uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. And we already see the Father. The Father was in, in, uh, is the one who is described as sending the Son. And he at his baptism, Jesus' baptism, my Son in whom I am well pleased, the Father says, listen to him. And don't miss that statement, right? This idea of listening. What has Jesus already told these Jews in here? He says, hey, you had not heard his voice. It's not that they didn't, they had never heard his voice. It's not that they've never read the scripture. The implication is you have read it. You just have not heard what God is saying. That's why you're not believing. And we'll, we're going to run into that again when we get to John chapter 6. So keep that in your mind. But it's the Father who has already demonstrated that part of his role. And again, I know it's difficult to speak of God in this way because Maybe I should step back just a second and say, hey, there is one God. We are monotheistic, right? We believe there's only one true and living God, generally defined as Yahweh in the Old Testament. But we believe that in the New Testament, God has revealed himself more clearly to us as one being who is made up of three persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, equally divine, one not the Father is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Son. You know, they're, they're, they're distinct persons, but they're equally divine. They make up the Godhead. And each one has taken a particular, each person of the Godhead has taken a particular role in the redemptive, redemptive work in humanity. God the Father has decreed and sent the Son. The Son has humbled himself and submitted to the will of the Father as it relates to redemptive history. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We see here Jesus is saying, I'm not doing my own will. I'm doing the will of the Father. I'm doing what he sent me to do. And then the Holy Spirit in that sense, as it relates to redemptive history, has a subordinate role. He does, again, what the Father and the Son send him to do in convicting and drawing men 
to Christ. And so it is almost impossible to understand the true nature of who Jesus is without understanding this Trinitarian connection where we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together. And at this point, Jesus is making plain that it's what I'm doing, what the Father has sent me to do. And so I think that's a legitimate argument. And while there are both probably, he's He's giving, not, this is probably a bad way to describe it, he's giving the nod to the Old Testament law, the two or three witnesses, but he's also making a profound statement about, hey, um, this is a Trinitarian effort to bring about redemption of humanity. And so I think that that's an interesting argument that Jesus starts off with in this passage. And now we'll camp out just a minute here in verses 33 through 40, where we look at these four witnesses that Jesus brings. So he gives this argument, uh, this opening statement, and now he's about to present these four witnesses to these Jews that they know and they have engaged with. Um, and so it's not a lack of knowing. It's not a lack of knowing uh, that the reason these Jews uh, have not believed in Jesus. It's, it's ultimately, I think, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. They're suppressing the truth that they do know. They're suppressing the truth that God's word has revealed to them. And so let's go on. These three, these four witnesses that Jesus has. So uh, in, the, in the first ones, verses 30, 33 through 35, he, brings, he bears, brings John the Baptist to bear witness that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is the Messiah, that he is uh, equal with God, that he can do what he says he can do, and he, uh, he has the authority to do so. And so you look in verses 33 through 35, it says, you sent to John. And we, we see that over in chapter 1, don't we? They send to John to inquire who he is. Are you the Messiah? Right? And what does John do? John agrees with their assessment that he's not the Messiah, but he's pointing toward the Messiah. You sent to John, Jesus says, and he bore witness uh, to the truth. What was the truth? The truth was, hey, there's one coming after me that's greater than I am, is what John says. His witness was to point them to Jesus Christ. Now that now that. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not receiving testimony from you or from any man. It's ultimately God who is given the authority and God who is sending me. But just so that you know, listen, I'm saying these things because if you would have grasped the truth of what John was saying, he says, but I say these things so that you might be saved. What was John doing? He was doing what you and I ought to be doing. Point people to Jesus. That's how people get saved. And he is saying to these Jews, if you would just have understood what John was doing and accepted the truth that he was pointing to, you, you could have been saved because he was pointing to me, Jesus is saying. And then he goes on in verse 35. He was a burning and shining <coughs> lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That's a, that's a powerful statement right there. Because John was doing what Jesus told us to do, wasn't he? John was a lamp in this world shining on Jesus Christ. And what has the Bible told us? What has Jesus told us to do? We are to be lamps, right? We're not to hide our lamp under a bushel. We are to be shining forth the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what John the Baptist was doing. And these people saw that. And Jesus even makes the claim, hey, you were willing for just a little while to rejoice in the benefit of the light that John produced. Do you remember? There were many people who were coming. They were going to where John was baptizing. And they, he was preaching that message of repentance. They were repenting and being baptized and preparing the way for the Messiah. And that's what, hey, rel religious righteousness was what these Jewish leaders were looking for, wasn't it? And this was a prophetic message that was coming. But they only rejoiced in the benefit. They never did buy into the truth of it. And how many people are there in this world? How many people are there who sit in church pews every Sunday that are not true followers of Christ, but they benefit from everything that the truth of the gospel presents in this world? Do you understand that if it were not for the common grace of God and the light of the gospel in this world that changes the hearts of humanity, that we would be a more despicable and wicked people than we already are in this world? Do you understand that? Do, do we really understand the magnitude of just the influence of those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ in this world? That's what Jesus is saying to these guys. You, you benefited from the results of people's lives being changed, but you never believed in the truth of it. And there are a lot of people in this world, a lot of people who sit in the church. They benefit from God's common grace, that part of which comes from the impact that the gospel transformation that has taken place in my life and in your life and how we go about living in this world and pointing people to morality and, and pointing people to righteousness and all those kinds of things and how it impacts those around us. They benefit from that light, but they never bow the knee to who the light is pointing to. Isn't that, isn't that sad? That's a terrible, terrible thought. So, again, it's not because there wasn't a witness. These guys knew John the Baptist, and they knew what he was pointing to. They just didn't want to believe it. It's not because there's a lack of evidence that people don't believe in Jesus Christ. That's really the theme of what this passage is telling us. And how many times have you heard people, or maybe you've seen people, who say, if, if, I, if God would just do this, or if I just had a little bit more evidence, it's not because of a lack of evidence that people don't believe in Jesus Christ. Is what, did, what, did, what did John tell us in chapter 1? Light came into the world, but men do what? They love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. It's because we, people love their sin that they don't come to faith in Christ. It's not because there's not enough evidence. God's gone out of his way, and, and Jesus is, is making that plain in John uh, chapter 5. So he presents John the Baptist as witness. Then the second witness he brings is in verse 36. His works. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit because what did Jesus tell us in the last section? That his works were equal with God. Why? Because he was equal with the Father because that's the works that he, were doing, he was doing. The Father, what the Father had called him to do, sent him to do, that's the work he was doing. We've already seen that in the first part of this passage. I'm not doing my own will. I'm doing the will of the Father. I'm doing what I've been called or, or sent to do. And so we read in verse 36, but the testimony that I have, it's greater than John. And so he's ramping up on these witnesses, right? 
This is greater than John's witness. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What is he talking about? Why did John write this gospel? He tells us, right? You remember, I think it was chapter 22. He says, many things Jesus said and done not written in this, in this book. But these things have been written so that you might believe that he is the son of God. And it, believing in his name that you might have life. And so what did he do? He picked, you know, about some people say seven. Some people say eight miracles, miraculous works that John chose to put in this gospel for the specific point of uh, reason of pointing us to Jesus Christ. And what have we seen already? The first miracle Jesus ever did, or at least one that was re- ever recorded for us, is at Cana at the wedding. He turned the water into wine. The people saw that, right? They were amazed by that. Almost, almost the ex nihilo kind of thing, right? He takes water and he makes it into something that is not. And then we have already encountered him healing an official's son. Now, get this. He, he was not even with the son. He, he didn't have to lay his hands on the son. He didn't have to do like the prophets and lay down on his body. He didn't, he didn't touch his eyes as we see later on. Jesus does those things. <clears throat> but what did he say to this official? He says to him, go home because your child's healed. And at that very moment when he spoke the words, he brought life to that child. If that doesn't declare to you that this is the God of creation who has the power of life and death in his hand, I don't know what else would. That's what Jesus is talking about. These things I do are not something you see every day. And they clearly declare to you that there's something different about me. That I am who I claim to be and that I can do what I claim to do. We see him. What's what's this occasion we're reading about in chapter 5? He healed this paralytic. Again, he didn't touch him. He just tells the man, get up, take your mat, and walk. And what does the man do? He gets up, takes his mat, and walks. Why? Because Jesus has the power of healing in the words that he says. And that's why they're all up in a tizzy right now. And just uh, next chapter, we're going to see Jesus take, you know, a few little fish and a few pieces of bread and feed 5,000 people. They hadn't seen that kind of stuff before. It's reminiscent of what happened in the Exodus with the manna when God provided for them food. How How do you do those kinds of things, right? What Jesus is saying, these works are bearing witness that I am God in the flesh, that I have the authority to say the things that I'm saying and do the things that I am doing. We're also going to see in chapter 6, I think, he he walks on water. We're going to get to the point where we see Jesus go up to a tomb where a man has been dead for three days, and Jesus says, roll back the tomb, and the people say, hey, He's been there so long, he stinks. And Jesus speaks into that tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man who's been dead for three days gets up and walks out. That's what Jesus is saying. My works bear witness to who I am. You hadn't seen this kind of stuff before. And then I mentioned all the, all the demonic possessions that Jesus, he cast out demons, Right? He walks up to them and they declare, we know who you are and it's not our time yet. Let us go to these pigs over here. All of these things that Jesus have been doing 
declare to them vividly that this is from God. It's not that they don't know. And what the people always want, they always want another sign. They always want another miracle. That's why Jesus says to uh, the folks over in Luke chapter 16, you you remember rich man and Lazarus? Not the same Lazarus, but rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus goes to be in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man goes to Hades. Not because he's rich, but because he never has bowed the knee uh, to God. He hadn't surrendered to God. And he says, hey, Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus back from the dead? Because I got five brothers, and I don't want them to come where I'm coming, where I've been. And surely if you send one back from the dead, they'll believe. You remember how Abraham answered him? Same way Jesus is going to answer these people at the end. He says, hey, they have, they have Moses and the prophets. He says, yeah, I got it, but no. If they would just see this miracle, they would believe. And Abraham says to him, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe this miracle. And isn't that true? Because the greatest miracle of all time has taken place over 2,000 years ago when a man who was hung on a cross and died for the sins of humanity was placed into a tomb and he came out three days later. And still people do not believe. It's not for a lack of evidence and it's not for a lack of signs that people don't trust Christ. It's because we love our sin. That's why people don't trust Christ. And it takes a work of God in the heart of a man and the heart of a woman to change that in us. That's what Jesus is going to tell us ultimately when we get to chapter 6. That's really what he's, what he's going to tell us toward the end of it. It takes the regenerative work of Christ in a man's heart and a woman's heart to change them to the point that they love the Savior more than they love their sin. All right, so that's the second witness, his works. That leads us to the third witness, the witness of his father. Verses 37 and 30, uh, 38. So back in the text, and the father who sent me, how many times have we seen that phrase in this passage already? And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And then he declares to them, his voice you have never heard. That is the, one of the most profound statements in this passage. And he'll make it even more clear when we get to the end. Because they have heard. Haven't they? They, they, they have the scripture. They've read it. They, they claim to be teachers of the scripture. Remember how Jesus addressed Nicodemus? He says, Nicodemus, you're, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things? What was he saying to Nicodemus? Just because you've read it, just because you've seen the words, just because you may have memorized it, doesn't mean you've actually heard what it was saying to you. And again, underline that. It's important because Jesus is going to use that again in John chapter 6. Because he says they're going to be those who are taught by God and it's the ones who are taught and who hear that come to him. And I've told you already, when we're in Revelation, there's something to this idea in the Bible about hearing. How many times in the letters to Revelation do we see to the churches? Every time, every one of those churches, he who has an ear, let him hear. What's the implication of that? Well, not everybody's going to hear. There is something that God has to do in us to open our ears up so that we can hear and understand the truth. And so uh, he goes on in verse 37. They haven't heard. His form you have never seen. 
But what, what does Jesus ultimately tell us later on again? He says, hey, if you want to know the Father, what do you need to do? You just need to look at me. Right? And that's what the, the Bible is telling us today. And, and he goes on to say, and you, do not, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. And again, he, he's putting this, I mean, it's like they got an open wound on their body and he got some, he's got salt on his thumb and he's rubbing it in. Because what do they champion themselves on? These religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, this uh, Sadducees. They pride themselves on being sticklers for knowing what God's word is and knowing the law and living in accordance with that law. And Jesus says, all of that knowledge you got in your head means nothing. Why? Because you don't see that it is pointing to me. And yet you claim to be an expert in it. It's not because of a lack of evidence or knowledge that they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And so... That's all free. All right. he, he's, he's using his father as this witness. So we've got to ask ourselves, how is he, what does he mean when he's talking about the father has borne witness to him? Because our, our first inclination, at least mine, is to think about, you know, God has made himself known in the scripture. Right? Because he's, he's hammering on this idea already in this section. And, and, and some of that is true. But I think God has revealed himself to them in at least two ways. One is in this idea of general revelation. You remember what Psalm uh, you know, 19 tells us? Psalm 19, 1, I think it is, that the heavens declare his handiwork, his, his glory, his majesty, right? And in Roman, uh, Paul picks up on that in, in Romans, doesn't he? He says, hey, when people look out at this creation, it declares to them that there is a creator. It declares to them that there is a God that must be worshiped. But what do they do? They suppress the truth of, of this general revelation that's all about us. And in, so God has declared himself in the heavens and in the creation so that men stand before him without excuse, just based on the fact that God has declared himself in creation. But there, there is this side of the, the specific or special revelation that God has declared himself in, and he's already talked about that in this passage. He has made himself known in a recorded verbal way that has been carried down throughout history. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but you and I have got to come to the place where we understand that it's not because people don't know that there's a God. It's not because people need more evidence for God that they don't believe. It's because they love their sin. And you and I have been called to continue to shine the light of the truth of the gospel in this world and pray to the God of heaven that they would, he would open their eyes so that they can see their sinfulness and they can see their need for a savior and they can be changed and redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so we have the witness of John the Baptist. We have the witness of Jesus' words. We have the witness of the Father that has, uh, that has created all things around us, that has sent the Son. And then he finally turns to the witness of Scripture in verses 39 and 40, 40 in, a, in an outright way. He says to them, you search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Isn't that 
Isn't that powerful? What's he saying? He's rubbing it in again. You guys claim to be, claim to be experts in the scripture. And you think you're going to find eternal life in those scriptures. But here's the thing. You're not believing what the scriptures said. Because they're pointing to me. They're telling you that I am the way, the truth, and the life, as we'll see in John chapter 14, verse 6. And you won't believe what the scriptures are saying to you. How many people in this world, you think? I don't know. There, there are people. You take, for instance, people like Bart Ehrman. He is a premier New Testament scholar who's written many books, but he don't believe what this book is pointing to. Isn't that, isn't that a shame? That a man can devote his life to the study of this book and not believe what this book is pointing him to. How many more people are like that in everyday life? There, there are people out there that maybe not scholars, but they read the Bible, they know the Bible. They're probably businessmen that know, they, they, they apply the principles of Proverbs to their business. But they don't understand that God's word is ultimately pointing to the fact that they need a savior. You, you can know everything there is in this book. You can have it memorized from cover to cover, right? And still die and go to hell if you don't bow your knee to Jesus Christ. That's what the old preachers used to say. You're 18 inches from, you know, heaven to hell, right? Just because you have knowledge of the truth. You remember those three things we talked about? Those three big Latin words. You, you got to have the knowledge of it, of the truth. But that if you have just the knowledge, it's not enough. You've you got to come to the place where you actually believe that that knowledge is true and that you bow your knee to Christ because you believe that he is who he said he is and he claimed and he's able to do what he said he can do. And that's what Jesus is saying to these guys. You've read it, but you're not getting it. And there are a lot of people that we know, a lot of people that you know, they may read it, but they're not getting it. Because why? It takes a work of God in their life to open their eyes to the truth. It's the Holy Spirit that draws men, right? It's the Holy Spirit that convicts men. I can't convict a single soul. That's the work of God in the heart of a person. But how does he do that? He does that with the truth of the word. And one of the means by which God does that is when you and I are faithful to share the truth of God's word. You know my favorite passage in Romans chapter, in Romans chapter 10, right? Verse 17, faith comes how? By hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And it takes God to open our eyes to the truth that we need a Savior. So, last point. Jesus' Jesus's, uh, closing arguments, this idea of his reason to condemnation. Look, listen to what he says to these people. And we'll wrap this up. Verse 41 through 47. He says, I do not receive glory from people. You could probably, a, a more wooden way of saying that is I'm not receiving glory from men. And the, the, the idea is that none of you are giving me the glory that I need, is what he's saying to these Jewish leaders. But I know that you don't have the love of God within you. And how does he know that? Listen to what he says. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. He just told them, everything that you claim to bank your salvation on, the scriptures 
that you, you love and read and cherish point to me, but you're not believing what they're pointing to. Therefore, you don't have the love of God in you because you're not receiving the one that the Father has sent. He says, if an, and here's, here's the irony of it. He says, if someone came in their own name, if another one came in their own name, you'd believe them. Isn't that sad? This is the one that they were looking for. They had spent their whole lives in, in dedication to uh, their understanding of the truth of the word of God. But when God fulfills that in sending the Messiah, they say, nope, that's not the one. But Jesus said, if somebody came in their own name, you'd, you'd eat that up. And that's sad. And how many times do we try to make a God of our own image, of our own ideas? of our own ideology. Isn't that the plague of humanity? We want God to be like we want God to be rather than allowing God to be who he is. We want God to do the things we want him to do in the way we want them to do, him to do it rather than letting God be the God that he is and do the things he wants to do in the way he's going to do them, right? It's his way or, or no way. I'll never get to heaven on the God of my own design. The only way I'm ever going to go to heaven, the only way I'm ever going to have a relationship with God is if I come through Jesus Christ because he is the means of salvation for all of humanity. He says, if another one comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory uh, that comes from God? What glory is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's the one who's come from God. They receive glory from each other, but they won't receive the glory that God sent them. Their eyes are blinded to the truth of it. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. In other words, really saying, I don't have to accuse you. There's somebody else who's already accused you, and it's the one that you claim to put your hope in. Listen to what it says. Moses, he's the one that accuses you on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And that's the irony of the whole thing, isn't it? That they have banked their hope in the words of Moses, and they missed what Moses was saying. Because Moses was saying, hey, this is the one. He's the one you need to bow your knee to. He's the one that you need to trust. He's the one in whom salvation rests. And they missed it. And they missed it. How many more people are missing it today? How many in this room may be missing it today? He goes on in verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so we close with this idea. It's not because of a lack of evidence that people don't bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has just shown us there is a mountain of evidence that he is who he claimed to be and that he has the authority to do what he claims to do. There's a mountain of it. God, God has gone out of his way to make himself known to us. You realize that? I mean, I mean we, we have to stumble over the evidence that God has presented to us throughout history. It's not because people don't have evidence. It's not because people don't have enough signs. It's because people love darkness rather than light because their sins, their deeds are evil, rather. 
and it takes a work of God in the heart of a man, a woman, a child to open their eyes to the truth that I am a sinner who is lost and undone. And if something doesn't happen, I'm going to die and go to hell. That's what had to happen to me. And if all of us are, if all of us examine our salvation experience, we'd probably come to the same conclusion. It wasn't until God opened my eye to the fact that I actually was a sinner and that I was guilty and that I was, that I was under the weight of his judgment. And the only hope for me was Jesus. That's what it was for me that, that first time God revealed it to me. If you die tonight, you're going to hell because you're a sinner and you'll, you'll suffer my judgment because you have not trusted Christ. And I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to. The Lord done a work in me. That's what he's got to do through you. So here, here's the invitation. Have you heard, right? What was Jesus telling these people? You, you're, you're not hearing. You're not hearing. Here's what I'd say to you, just like the author of Hebrews says. Hey, when you hear it, be obedient. When you hear God speaking in that still small voice in your soul, just say, yes, Lord. Bow your knee to Christ and trust him. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time you've given us. We trust, Lord, that uh, there is a lost person among us today that they would come to faith in Christ and they'd have the boldness to come and declare that. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are believers, that we would be faithful to the task that you've set before us. Lord, that we would be faithful to shine the light of the gospel in this world that points to Jesus Christ. And we trust you, Lord, to do what only you can do, and that's change the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. So have your way with us in these next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.